there's a lot of misleading stuff. There are many labs who have a pattern of, and this is well known in the aging field, I'm sure it's well known in other fields, of a pattern of leaving out data that doesn't fit the model. You can be physically the healthiest person on the planet, but if you're emotionally unhappy, like what's the point? My name is Matt Caberlin, and welcome to the OptiSpan YouTube channel. The information provided on the OptiSpan YouTube channel is intended solely for general educational purposes and is not meant to be, nor should it be construed as, personalized medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is established by your use of this channel. The information and materials presented are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We strongly advise that you consult with a licensed healthcare professional for all matters concerning your health, especially before undertaking any changes based on content provided by this channel. The hosts and guests on this channel are not liable for any direct, indirect, or other damages or adverse effects that may arise from the application of the information discussed. Medical knowledge is constantly evolving. Therefore, the information provided should be verified against current medical standards and practices. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the OptiSpan YouTube channel. Today, we're going to hit uh, Longevity Myths Part 2. I'm joined again by Nick Arapis, and uh, Nick is going to throw some questions at me, and I'm going to try to field them, hopefully without saying anything too controversial. So go ahead and uh, take it away, Nick. All right, Matt. Your first question is, people shouldn't live too long. We need to make way for the next generation and their new ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a uh, common uh, thought that that I hear sometimes presented by people who, you know, want to argue against the idea that we should be trying to increase longevity. I think there's a few things that I would say about that. Um, first of all, I think people should recognize that the approach that uh, those of us who study longevity, or I would frame it more as the biology of aging or geroscience are taking, um, really in some ways is no different from traditional medical approaches of trying to cure disease, right? The goal is the same. The goal is to keep people healthy and to help people live as long as they can in good health. Um, what I would argue is that the approach of targeting the biology of aging is just a much more effective approach than what we have been doing, which is to wait until people are sick with cancer or heart disease or some other disease and then try to cure the disease. So, But fundamentally, I think it's just important for people to appreciate the goal is really the same. The goal is to keep people alive and keep people healthy. So from that perspective, I think if you want to argue that we shouldn't try to target the biology of aging because we need to make way for the next generation or because people are concerned about overpopulation, you also sort of have to take that same principle and apply it to trying to cure disease. So, and I don't think anybody, well, I guess I shouldn't say anybody. I don't think most people would argue that we shouldn't try to cure cancer or shouldn't try to cure heart disease. By that same logic, I don't think you can argue that we shouldn't try to prevent cancer or prevent heart disease from happening in the first place. I do think, you know, this idea of what would the consequences be if we, and I'm going to say we as sort of the general scientific community focused on longevity, if we're successful at, say, radically increasing longevity. So again, first of all, I think it's important to, to, to clarify, you know, given what we know now, I don't think there's any reason to believe that we are talking about more than maybe 20 years of additional health span, given what we know today. I think that's probably doable. Beyond that, I don't think there's any evidence yet. But let's say that we were successful at, you know, let's just let's just throw a gigantic number out there, doubling lifespan. What would the impact be on population? What would the impact be on, you know, careers and career availability for the next generation? Those are all like larger societal questions that will need to be addressed. 
Um, I don't think we can really predict what the consequences are going to be, though. I think that, you know, there would clearly be major social changes if most people had double the life expectancy that, that, that they do today. It's really hard to predict what those social changes would be. I would say you can you can kind of, you know, different people tend to either gravitate towards the negative or gravitate towards the positive. Personally, I feel like there's a lot of reasons to gravitate towards the positive. If we are successful eventually at dramatically increasing health span, dramatically increasing lifespan, there's a lot of good that goes along with the potential challenges that society are gonna, are, is going to face. Um, you know, be, people being able to remain productive, highly engaged for another 20, 30, 40 years, right? There's a lot of value to that, especially because these are going to be people who have accumulated a lot of knowledge and wisdom. So, you know, there are going to be challenges, but there's also a lot of good that goes along with that. All right, great. So next one for you is detox diets and cleansers will rejuvenate my body. Yeah, so I think as as a general rule, uh, I I personally don't put much faith in the idea of sort of detox strategies. I will say, I mean, I think it is, I think, you know, where this concept comes from, the idea of detox diets or other other sort of de detoxification uh, approaches comes from, there is some validity to that. And that's the idea that in our environment, the environment that most people experience, um, we are bombarded with a lot of things that are not healthy for our bodies, right? And so if you just think about the typical American diet, there's a lot of junk in there. And so the concept that we want to kind of remove the bad stuff from the diet makes a lot of sense. I think, I think you know, there are probably some forms of these uh, detox or cleansing diets that, that have some value. I think for, you know, personally, um, like I think the idea of a, a whole foods diet where you basically take out all of the processed foods or at least to the extent that you can, that makes a lot of sense and that can be really useful to people. But the idea that a detoxification, uh, uh, a severe de detoxification approach is going to, you know, cure all of your ails, I think is a little bit misguided. The one area that I think is actually pretty interesting here is, is and it's a little bit of a tangent, but, but maybe worth just... Um, mentioning briefly is I think, you know, there is some validity to the idea that a lot of what we experience, and, and again, by we, I mean mostly uh, people in developed nations and in the Western world uh, particularly experience is we, a lot of our foods, because they're processed, um, uh, are inflammatory, meaning our bodies aren't used to the components of many of the foods used from an evolutionary perspective to the components of many of the foods that we consume. That can lead to an inflammatory response of the immune system and probably contribute to some of the chronic age-related inflammation that we know most people um, experience. And so, again, I think the, the cleansing diets, the sort of taking out the inflammatory components of the diets for a short period of time to sort of reset uh, the immune system, the inflammatory state, that's plausible. It, it kind of makes some biological sense that that could have some real value for people. And so again, I wouldn't want to completely throw out the idea of detox diets, but I also wouldn't want to suggest to people that that's going to be a, a, a cure for everything that ails them. I don't know of any evidence in the longevity space to support the idea that that sort of an approach can increase lifespan, certainly not in laboratory animals. I don't think there have been any studies. And again, in people, that's a really hard thing to to demonstrate. So I think as a longevity strategy, you could speculate, but there's really no data to support that. Would your answer for sauna be around the same? 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think, well, so sauna, I think for different mechanistic reasons, you could come up with a plausible explanation for how it could be beneficial for health. But yes, I think the answer would be the same that there isn't, from a longevity perspective, there really isn't any experimental data to support the idea that that sauna is a particularly useful strategy for increasing lifespan or health span. Again, I'm not aware of any studies in laboratory animals directly um, although let's come back to that in a second. And I think the human data is just, we just don't have enough, enough data. The laboratory animals are interesting. So I think you could come up with a plausible mechanistic argument for, for uh, regular sauna use from laboratory studies. So there is a body of literature, mostly in invertebrates. I'm not sure if there's anything in mice, but certainly in C. elegans, and, uh, which is a nematode worm, and fruit flies, there is data for intermittent heat shock through a mechanism called hormesis. And the idea here is that you give a little bit of stress, not enough to cause damage, but enough stress to turn up the protective responses. Turning up those protective responses is actually beneficial in the long run because that you then protect against additional damage from the environment. So transient heat shock is enough to increase, uh, elevate levels of proteins called heat shock factors, which then can be protective against other types of age-related damage. So you could make a plausible argument that, that that could be what sauna is doing in people. So my next comment, if I'm thin, I'm healthy. <laughs> uh, obviously wrong. Like I think, first of all, you can think of the extremes in, in cases like this. And actually this is sort of a general, useful generalization is, you know, when people make statements like this, um, one of the first things that 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 you ought to do is just try to think of the extremes and say, okay, does it work for the extremes? Because if it doesn't work for the extremes, then it's not a valid statement, right? So if you think about the extremes there, people who have eating disorders are malnourished, are going to be thin, they're not healthy. So clearly that statement is wrong. I think the idea though, uh, there's a little bit more nuance here that's worth exploring, which is, you know, even people who are thin in what we would consider, or maybe look healthy, right? If you just look at them or even look at their sort of percent body fat, where the body fat is matters, right? And so, you know, when we, when we talk about DEXA, we're going to do an episode on DEXA at some point coming up, uh, which is a method for assessing body composition. You know, we'll get into the idea that where the fat is distributed actually seems to matter. So you can be thin overall, you can have a relatively low percent body fat, but have a high amount of what's called visceral fat, visceral adipose tissue, and actually be metabolically unhealthy as a consequence of having a high amount of visceral adipose tissue. So, so even in people where you might look at their bodies and they're not too thin, they're not unhealthy thin, uh, they have a body fat percentage that would normally be thought of as in the healthy range, but actually are metabolically unhealthy because of where the fat is distributed. Um, so there are lots of reasons why I think that particular myth um, is incorrect. So I think you answered the next myth, which is if someone is visibly overweight, they aren't healthy. Yeah. So again, I think it, I think weight is a very crude measure, right? So weight just tells you, you know, uh, the, the, the mass of a person on earth, right? How, how much they weigh, but doesn't tell you what that weight is made up of. And so even in our bodies, right? Weight is going to be affected by how much fat you have, how much muscle you have, your bones, how much water is in your body. So again, on the surface, even when you just really take a second to think about that statement. Um, it's more complicated than that. So I think at population level, things like weight, body mass index are very useful tools. But when you look at the individual, you really want to do a little bit of a deeper dive. You could certainly have somebody who is heavily muscled, 
They might be considered overweight based on a tool like body mass index, but are actually very, very healthy. So again, in general, these statements, I think, are, are generally true, but there are going to be many people who don't fit into those categories. Okay. All right. So my next question, if a drug works when you test in a mice, in a mouse, it'll work on a human as well. Right. So, I mean, clearly that's not, that's not the case. We know of many examples, say, in the cancer literature where a drug was successful at curing a particular form of cancer in mouse models. It didn't end up working the same way in humans. So, so again, this is one of those statements where on the surface, you can just, if you just stop and think for a minute, you can say, okay, that's obviously not true. Where does that come from though? I mean, I think that um, what I would say is a lot of times people will point to the example I gave, which is the cancer literature and try to say, well, nothing that we do in a mouse is valuable. So I think we want to be careful not to throw out all of the data that we get from mouse models or even other simpler animal models, simply because things don't always translate from mice to humans. So we just have to be, we have to recognize when um, these experiments are done, if they were done in a mouse, what, what, what that means and that we can't necessarily extrapolate that to people. I do think in the field of aging biology or geroscience, actually, though, we can make a case, and again, this hasn't been proven, but, but I think there's good reason to believe this is probably true, that the animal models are actually better models for aging than they are for things like cancer or heart disease many times. The reason for that is because when people study aging in mice, for example, they use old mice, which is sort of obvious. But when people study cancer in mice, even though cancer is mostly an age-related disease, they typically do these studies in artificially induced cancers in young mice. So they lose all of the aging biology. And I, I would argue that's why probably many things haven't translated in cancer because the aging biology is really important. So my speculation is that actually much more of what we learn about the biology of aging in mice will be relevant in people because those studies are done in old mice. And so we get that context of the aged physiology. Now, is everything going to be the same? No, I think we can, we can, but we can actually make rational predictions about what isn't going to translate, given what we know about studies in mice. And a couple things worth mentioning, because this will probably come up in, in future episodes. Um, one is the use of inbred mouse strains. So most biomedical research in aging and in every other biomedical field are done in what are called inbred mouse strains. So these are mouse strains that have been genetically bred so that they are essentially all individuals are like identical twins. So we don't have the genetic diversity there that we do have in people. And that creates limitations to what we can conclude from those studies. There are reasons why scientists do that and they're valid reasons, but it also limits the extrapolation to a genetically diverse population. Caloric restriction is a good example of this. Caloric restriction increases lifespan in many inbred mouse strains, but not all. So then when you take something like caloric restriction and you extrapolate that to a genetically diverse population like people or like dogs or even wild caught mice, there are going to be many genetic backgrounds where caloric restriction doesn't increase lifespan and may actually shorten lifespan. But we don't see that if we're only studying it in one inbred genetic background in mice. Um, so I think that's just worth appreciating that, you know, these are some of the limitations to the way the studies are done in mice that also impact the likelihood that a, a, a longevity intervention is going to translate to people. Okay, so my next one's related. So I've heard this before. 
I do a 16-8 intermittent fasting diet because I saw a study on mice who did 16-8 fast and they were healthier than the mice who ate whenever they wanted. Right. So a couple things I would say on that. One is, again, you know, as we just discussed, you can't necessarily jump right from mice to people. Just because something works in mice doesn't mean it's going to work in people. And just because something doesn't work in mice doesn't mean it's not going to work in people. So you have to really be aware of the context. That's a general statement. I think in this particular case, the 16-8 or what people would call time-restricted feeding, uh, I'd say go back and read that study because the studies in mice claiming that health span has been improved from time-restricted feeding are, are typically pretty weak in my view. They're, the, the quality of the science is okay in some cases, but the interpretation is often massively overstated. So my personal view of the literature in this space is that um, time-restricted feeding from a longevity perspective, I don't think there's any evidence that it increases longevity, even in the animal models, let alone in people. And from a health span perspective, there's really not much evidence that this sort of uh, time-restricted feeding has big benefits on health spent. Maybe small metabolic benefits, but even there, I would say it's not very convincing. So, so I would say you really have to be able to not just look at the headlines, but actually get into the, the, the meat of the science in order to be able to really evaluate, you know, some of the claims that are made. I would say the same thing's true for intermittent fasting as well. And by that, you know, in mice, we typically would define intermittent fasting as fasting the animals for more than 24 hours. I think we may have touched on this in, in the, the prior episode. But, you know, again, once you control for calorie consumption, the benefits of intermittent fasting pretty much go away, even in mouse models. So it's really not so clear whether that's a caloric restriction effect versus a fasting effect. And I'm not trying to say there are no benefits from fasting or time-restricted feeding. Again, I think they can be useful strategies for some people to maintain a healthy body weight and to help with, with uh, sort of overall dietary goals. Uh, but from a longevity perspective, again, I'm, I'm really not convinced there's a lot of evidence that these sort of time-restricted feeding or eating strategies have much in the way of pure longevity or health span benefits once you control for calories. So my view, at least for now, is um, you know really focus more on the composition of the diet from a healthy diet perspective than when you're eating. That's my personal perspective. Um, but to go back, go back to your question again, I think it's especially. I mean, this is true in every field, but I think especially, <laughs> I'm gonna say especially in longevity and especially in nutrition and doubly especially at that intersection, people really have to be cautious of claims. And uh, all, there's a lot of misleading stuff that gets out in the ether. They're just, the science doesn't really back it up. Okay, so next potential myth. All scientific research on longevity that comes from a peer-reviewed academic journal is trustworthy. <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of just talked about this. So again, I, I, so there's two things to say again. If you think about the extremes, right? Um, clearly, we all know there are cases of sort of fabrication of data where studies are retracted. So again, on its surface, that statement clearly is not true. But I, I want to make the point. Personally, I think that kind of uh, untrustworthy uh, behavior is pretty rare. It's not as common as a lot of people want to make it out to be that scientists intentionally make up data. I think what does happen a lot is that mistakes are made in the research and even more frequently mistakes are made in the interpretation or the interpretation is sloppy or things are intentionally overinterpreted to get your paper published in a higher profile journal. That's just the nature of the, the incentive reward structure in science. So 
my view is everybody, again, needs to be cautious of just believing the interpretation, just believing the headlines. So there's there, there are many places where uh, the presentation of the science can go off the rails, right? It can happen at the level of the experiments themselves. Mistakes can be made. Experiments are sometimes wrong. They aren't replicated. It can be completely honest behavior. That's why we have replication built into the scientific process. Mistakes can be made at the level of how the scientists themselves interpret their data, how they write the paper. There can be intentional misinterpretation of the data or overinterpretation of the data. And then when the media gets involved, you know, all bets are off, right? So again, I think people have to be very cautious about just believing the headlines. And I know most people probably aren't equipped to really dive into the details of the studies. So I don't have a great answer except, you know, watch the OptiSpan YouTube channel. Uh, we're going to do our best to present this stuff with a rigorous um, and unbiased view and try to find other good sources of information out there. I think there are, you know, a few people who try really hard to present the science for a general audience in a way that is both rigorous and understandable. I'd say the other side of that would be how people potentially discredit certain studies because of who funded it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's worth, I think that's worth being aware of, um, you know, and I think probably what you're specifically referring to are like if a food company funds it or like the classic case would be the, the tobacco companies funding research on smoking. Right. So clearly that can have a role. Um, again, my view is those are the, those are typically the exceptions rather than, than the rules. Um, uh, most scientists are, are, generally pretty honest people, right? There are some bad actors out there. I'm not going to pretend like there aren't. But I, I think that, the, again, um, it's worth knowing if a study was funded by uh, a company and then the results of the study seem to favor that company. Most research um, is in the, in the United States, at least biomedical research is funded by NIH. So I think in that case, you know, you don't really have to worry about the, the, the bias of the for-profit component. Um, sometimes people make the same argument about if a uh, if an investigator is also on the advisory board for a company, for example. Those are things that are worth worth knowing. I, I would say my personal view is that that um, the financial conflict of interest piece is important, but probably overblown a bit because there are non-financial conflicts of interest that are rampant in science. Like I just mentioned, how you know. There are certain ways of interpreting your results and writing your papers that are more likely to make it possible to get those papers published in top-tier journals. Typically, those approaches to writing your papers may mean that you misinterpret, overinterpret, sometimes leave stuff out of the papers. There are many labs who routine, routinely publish in Cell, Science, Nature, who have a pattern of, and this is well known in the aging field, I'm sure it's well known in other fields, of a pattern of leaving out data that doesn't fit the model. Now, if it turns out the model's correct, that isn't so important, but oftentimes the data you leave out is the data that is inconsistent with the model. And that's how in the aging field we've gotten some of these notorious models that get into the literature and it takes a really long time to clean that up. But People don't pay much attention. And so sort of what I'm saying is that's a non-financial conflict of interest. By doing this, by getting these high-profile publications, people are more likely to get tenure. They're more likely to get grants. So I think there are all sorts of conflicts of interest that are built into the system because of the way the academic incentive structure works that we don't pay any attention to 
um, that are probably even more important from sort of a global scientific quality perspective than the financial conflict of interest of, you know, a scientist serving on an advisory board. So it's just worth being aware that even if we're hypervigilant about financial conflicts of interest, that's not really going to cover probably what is the preponderance of, you know, bad behavior that's out there. All right. So last question. Living longer and healthier is all about how you treat your body. Huh. So, I mean, clearly how you treat your body is important, right? So if, if we think about, you know, sort of the pillars of health as we've defined them at OptiSpan, um, you know, eat, move, sleep, clearly all of those fall into how you treat your body. Is that the only thing? No, probably not. I mean, I think if you think about emotional health, sort of uh, social connection, your connection to other people, um, that is outside of, I guess, the way most of us would think about how we, you know, how you treat your body. And I would say that's, you know, probably just as important, right? And so, you know, one way I think about this is, you know, uh, pe some people don't really like the idea of, of, you know, trying to quantify happiness or measure happiness, but I think that's, that's a word that I, I use and I, I like. And I think, you know, how, how do you achieve happiness, right? So part of that is going to be your interactions, your relationships with other people. And from my perspective, you can be physically the healthiest person on the planet, but if you're emotionally unhappy, like what's the point? <laughs> so I would say you, you need to pay attention to, to uh, the maybe non-physical aspect. Maybe we'll talk about it as physical versus non-physical, the non-physical aspects of health as well. Because I think if you don't have both, you know, there's no way you can really consider your health, yourself to be a truly healthy person. Okay, so I got a little bonus for you. So these are popular health methods rapid fire. They're not necessarily <laughs> myths. So try to keep it around maybe 20 to 30 seconds. And you can feel free to pass on any of them. Um, and, I wanted... and what am I supposed to do? Just give you my yeah, opinion? Yeah, so uh, of your, the... your opinion, perhaps experience. Uh, these aren't OptiSpan's recommendations necessarily. It's more of just my my enjoyment. Okay. So, all right. <laughs> first one is bulletproof coffee. So, so first of all, let's make sure we 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 share the definition here. So, bulletproof coffee is the idea that you put butter in your coffee. Butter, MCT oil. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I have never tried bulletproof coffee. Uh, I don't have a strong opinion about that. Other other than I guess I would say, you know, if this is something that helps somebody stick to a low carb diet and for, you know, maybe they're pre-diabetic, maybe they have good reasons to want to be on a ketogenic or low carb diet and it works for you. Great. I don't personally use that strategy. And so I don't really have any personal comments on it. All right. Next one is meal replacement shakes or protein bars. Yeah. So I, I have used both. I actually do. I don't use it as a meal replacement so much. I think again, depends on the goals. Um, I do typically have a shake in the morning and I find it works really well for me. Um, and I've had, I've used protein bars a fair amount in the past. I've actually stopped recently, um, in part because they're just, they're, they're processed, right? Ultra processed. And so, you know, I, I'm trying to cut out as much of the processed and ultra processed foods from my diet as I can, but I also want to, you know, be able to get, uh, what, I, what for me, I feel like is an adequate amount of protein. So trying to find different strategies. So I don't want to say protein bars are bad, but I think you want to be careful not to overuse things like protein bars and try to get your nutrients from whole foods as much as you can. Okay. Uh, next one, essential oils. What about essential oils? Um, do you use them? Is it something that I know they're very popular right now for 
maybe homeopathic remedies. Or yeah, I don't, I don't have any, I don't, and I don't yeah. really have any personal experience or deep thoughts. Oh, pass. <laughs> uh, next one, you know, 10 minute ab routine. Yeah. So again, I think if it works for you, great. I don't do any, I don't actually don't do any dedicated ab work. I actually find that I do pull-ups uh, almost every time I do back, I do a fair amount of pull-ups and those work my abs really well as do, you know, other sort of compound movements. So I don't actually do any dedicated abs. You tried um, L-sit pull-ups? I don't, but I'm sure that they would there do the trick. Uh, yeah. So again, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe when I get my body fat down another few points, I'll take my shirt off and we can compare abs. Oh, but, okay. uh, right. I think, I think my core is in pretty good shape. Great. All right. Next one. Acupuncture. I've never done acupuncture. Don't have a strong, again, if it works for you, great. I don't have any experience. Uh, 10,000 steps a day challenge. Yeah, I, again, I think that's a really useful sort of easy thing for a lot of people to to adopt. So if, it, if that is a uh, strategy that helps you get up and move, go for it. I think it's fantastic. Is there anything magic about 10,000 steps? No, of course not. But if it helps people get up and move, great. Low carb diets. Yeah. So personally, I have found, I have learned over the years that a low carb diet works really well for me, both from an appetite perspective, body composition perspective, and then using continuous glucose monitoring. So works really well for me. Is it right for everyone? No, probably not. But again, I would say, you know, if you're trying to figure out the strategy for you, that's going to help you, you know, get to the body weight that you want to get to get to the body composition that you want to get to, it's worth a try. Okay. Uh, waist trainers. Don't know anything about it. The waist things people wear, supposed to heat up that area. No experience. Pass. High intensity interval trainings. Yeah. So I, I, um, I, I think, you know, clearly there's a lot of literature here that HIT training, uh, can be quite useful for cardiovascular fitness, improving VO2 max. Um, I don't do sort of a dedicated HIT routine with the, with the goal of training to, uh, a specific target. But uh, my wife and I have gotten into the habit of use, almost every week we go, there's a, a set of 130 or so steps in Issaquah, which is not too far from where we live. And we go every Saturday or Sunday, go up and down for half an hour. So that kind of is a hit routine that just works really well for us. But I don't do any dedicated hit training. Again, you know, I, I feel like for the most people, unless you're sort of an extreme athlete, you really want to try to optimize everything. For most people, it's about finding the type of exercise that works for you that you can maintain for the long run. And so if HIIT training and being sort of goal-driven and that's a real strategy that works for you, great, go do it. Is there sort of, you know, a ton of value for the average person to really try to optimize VO2 max or things like that? I, I don't know. It, I, again, I think it's pretty personal. Yeah, your opinion on standing desk? use them. I don't, but again, if it works for you, great. Uh, mouth taping at night. Don't have any experience or knowledge about that. Okay. So it's to help, um, reduce snoring and nasal breathe. Yeah. So yeah, I don't have any, any experience or knowledge with that. One thing that I have, and again, <laughs> we're getting off on a tangent a bit, but one thing that I have learned, uh, is lots of people grind their teeth at night. It turns out I do. I never really knew this. But uh, have started uh, using a mouth guard at night for 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 tooth grinding. So if you have if you wake up with sore jaws or if you go to your dentist and they tell you you grind your teeth, it might be something to pay attention to. Okay, uh, sleep gadgets and you know cool beds or trackers stuff like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've used the Aura Ring before. I'm not actually wearing one now. Uh, but uh, And I found the Aura Ring is, is, is pretty valuable uh, for monitoring quality of sleep. I think, you know, the question with the Aura Ring for me, and I'm going to actually start using my Aura Ring again here pretty soon, you know, is once you've sort of gone through the process of learning about sleep quality, I don't, again, it's going to be very individual. For me, I don't know how much value there there is to continuing to use that. Um so, so we'll see. Like I said, I'm gonna try using the Aura Ring again. But I did learn a lot when the, you know, my first experience using the Aura Ring. The other thing that my wife and I have have started using, which um, I think has been pretty good for quality of sleep, is a gravity blanket. So one of these heavy blankets. Um, so those are the two that I have experience with. I know you hike a lot. Have you tried any barefoot style shoes like Vivo? You know, way back, you know, when those first kind of came on the scene, I gave it a try and just never could really get to the point where I felt like they were working for me. So I don't now. Okay. Uh, this one was from Jessica, who works at OptiSpan. So oil pulling for dental health. Have you heard of that? Oil pulling. So no. people usually use coconut oil and they put it in their mouth for 15, 20 minutes and they spit it out before brushing their teeth. No, no. Don't know anything about it. Uh, the, the one thing I will say is for me, for dental health, uh, you know, once I finally got to the point where I got in the habit of flossing twice a day, I've had no cavities since then. And I had a lot of cavities when I was a kid. That was also probably because I ate a bunch of junk. But I will just say, I think flossing is an underappreciated thing. And, I, and like so many things in life, just get in the habit. And then once you're in the habit, it's easy. Uh, so I would say put I would put flossing, obviously brushing your teeth at the top of my list for dental care. And going to the dentist regularly actually is pretty important. So if you don't do that, get on it. What got me flossing was the relationship with heart disease. Yes, right. So yeah, and I mean this is where this is a we'll give a we'll give a plug because uh sometime in an upcoming episode, we're gonna have Dr. Jonathan on, who's at the University of Washington in oral health sciences, come and talk with us about the relationship between oral health and aging in the rest of the body. So you're right, periodontal disease in particular, people with periodontal disease are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, diabetes. So there's clearly a link between health of the mouth and health of the rest of the body. So John's gonna come and talk to us about that and then also tell us about the clinical trial he's got going to test whether or not rapamycin can reverse or prevent periodontal disease in people. Okay, last one is, I feel like milk's become a hot topic. So there's skim milk, whole milk, and then all the alternatives. What do you yeah. personally? Yeah, so uh, so it's been a while since I've actually drank regular milk. I mean, I did obviously growing up, uh, had a lot of uh, dairy milk, but I don't really know the reason why, but we kind of you know moved that out of our diets uh, at home. And my wife and I use almond milk. Works really well. That goes in the shake. Maybe someday I'll give away my secret recipe for my morning shake. But yeah, almond milk is our go-to now at home. Okay, that's everything I got for you. Awesome. Thank you. All right, if you like this, please like, share, subscribe. If you want more content like this, just let us know in the comments below. We're going to be reading every comment. All right, thank you, Matt. Awesome. Thanks, Nick.